Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to Triple R this morning. It is a gloomy, uh, nice, cool summer morning in Melbourne. In the studio with me today, very exciting, uh, Dr. Laura. Hello. Good morning, Dr. Shane. It's great to have you in the studio, in the flesh. It's great to be here. Yeah. We also have uh, Liv in the studio doing our Twitter feed. We haven't seen Liv in two and a half years. I know. It's been a while, hasn't it? Yeah. And you've been you've been struck down by some mysterious uh, virus, yes. but you're, you're doing... Well, you're not okay, but you're okay. I'm getting there. You're definitely. getting there. You're doing well. And uh, online, all the way from Texas, is Gracie. Good morning, Gracie. Yes. Good evening. Thanks for having me. Oh, good evening. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> what is it, about 5, 6 o'clock over there in Texas at the moment? Yes, it's 6 p.m. Yep. 6 p.m. There we go. On a Saturday yep. night. Saturday night. Thanks for giving up yes. your Saturday night for us. We appreciate that. And Dr. Ailey's on the line as well. Good morning, Ailey. Good morning, Dr. Shane. It's good to see you. Now, we're going to start off with some news. I think, uh, Laura, we might start with you because you're in the studio. You're looking ready. I am you, ready. You ready? Um, well, I couldn't go past a story that made the front cover of Science Magazine this week. Front cover of Science, beautiful little gecko, and it's all about how um, lizards self-amputate their tails and the mechanism mm. of how they do it. Now, we know that um, several animals, including lizards and um, salamanders, some fish and tadpoles, can detach their organs. Well, not organs, sorry, limbs. What am I thinking? Organs. Yes. Just rip your heart out. <laughs> what is this? Temple and tomb? Salamanders can regrow all sorts of things. But um, this regeneration process has been really well studied of, you know, lizards detach their tails and how do they regrow? And that's, that's, mm. that's been well studied. But how do they actually detach their tails? Because it's a really clean break. There doesn't seem to be sort of tissue damage when they drop their tails. And they do this in a self, as a self-defense strategy. So if you go to catch a lizard, and the researchers ended up doing this, um, it, will, it will drop its tail, so it's voluntary um, self-amputation, and the tail will keep moving for about 30 seconds, which keeps predators distracted in time for the lizard to get away now there's a huge fitness cost to this for a lizard so it's got to be careful about when where how it drops its tail um because you know it takes about six months to grow back so that will affect their mating you know do you want a tailless partner um it will affect their self-defense and their motility so with this in mind um the researchers asked well how are they able to so rapidly detach their tails but keep it on for like you know, the most of the time. You only want to mm. drop it in extreme strategy. So yeah. New, York campus, New York University campus in Abu Dhabi, apparently it's crawling with geckos. So the researchers, they went out, they captured a bunch of geckos, took them back to the lab, and then they pulled their tails a bit. They just, they coaxed them. You don't pull the tail off. It's a voluntary detachment from mm. the lizard. So they just coaxed them into dropping their tails. And then they use scanning electron microscopes to examine exactly what's going on. And um, it's been known before that um, throughout the lizard tail, there are um, fracture planes. So there are points of weakness, and this is where it's detached. So it's predetermined where, where it's going to detach. And, the, and under the scanning microscope, they looked at the surface of these um, fracture planes. So they're taking the move, moving, you know, recently amputated tail, and they're looking on the surface of it. And it was covered with um, mushroom-like structures that had lots of pores in the caps of the mushroom. And what they found is that 
the, the, the fragments of the tail, they're not actually interlocking. It's actually adhesion forces that keeps them together. And so when they, um, when they, uh, when they detach, the, what the lizard does, and they had a slow motion video kind of that showed the lizard doing this, the, the, the muscles of the lizard contracts and it twists the tail. So it just like that gives you a clean break off. So if you pull the tail under stress, the tail won't come off. But if the lizard twists the tail, that's how it snaps off. Wow. That's amazing stuff. I know. How cool is that? I mean, it's freaky stuff that they can do it because also there's a lot of information going from the brain down to the, you know, the tail end. That's incredible. I mean, I thought that you could pull the tail off, but it won't. It's The adhesion forces are so strong that if you pull it, you won't get a clean break. The lizard has to do it itself. It has to twist it to cleave it. It's very cool. I wonder whether they can do that once the tail starts growing. Like if it's a partially grown tail, can (gasps) can they unload a partially grown tail? is a great question because when the tail comes back it does not come back the same it's never the same tail so as in it's not the same structure there's a cartilus rod now and it makes the it means the tail is not as flexible as it was before and lizards with multiple tails is actually very common lizards can be known to grow up to six new tails at the same time freaking out now Freaky. Yep, amazing stuff. Uh, Dr. Ailey, like, no pressure at all to beat the uh, self-removing tail story. Well, that was pretty cool. I, I, I've got one that I think is right up there, though, I have to say. This is a new study that came out on Wednesday in Nature. So we're going from Science to Nature magazine. Um, and this one is about lizards too, although very, very old lizards. We're going to go back to the time of the dinosaurs. And in particular, we're going to go back to the end of the dinosaurs. So, you know, commonly uh, accepted that a giant big meteor came down, struck the earth. Um, it's called the Chicxulub impact, uh, which happened basically around the Yucatan Peninsula in uh, Mexico. So this was massive. You know, this was you know, destroyer of worlds kind of meteor, right? And so what happened was there were big shock waves. There was a lot of what they call seishing. So, you know, oceans moved around, rivers got, you know, big kind of tsunamis, basically huge ones. Mm. And one of these tsunami type uh, things happened up a river in North Dakota in the United States. So this is right up on the border of Canada. And at the time, a lot of stuff that was, you know, probably dead from the impact of the the the, uh, the um, meteor itself got buried in sediments there. And people have just found it. And this place in North Dakota, they're calling it Tanis, and it's basically this big um, mass of stuff that seemed to have all basically been wiped out when this meteor hit the earth. So they called now, it Tanis like in Raiders of the Lost Ark? Yeah, the map they room. called it Tanis. Yes. Yes, that's exactly. See, that's where all my education comes from, Steven Spielberg films, and I think most (laughs) listeners know this. So there you go. I I think that I assume that's where it's named after. But this place has been a real wealth of information, and so a few studies have been published on it. But um, what happened was there was a a researcher from the University of Uppsala in Sweden who found out about this place and found out that there were little fish that they had found in this kind of mass of stuff that had died so she said oh like look i'm a paleontological fish expert let me have a look so she did she had a look at these little fish and what she found were these little kind of um solidified globs of of molten rock in their gills right so these were little spherules of of basically just leftover stuff from the the asteroid that hit so um it means that the fish 
died pretty much at the impact because they were ingesting these things in their gills. They couldn't breathe. They died. So we know that that was associated with the impact. What she then did was look at the bone structure of these fish and she found that just like trees have this different structure as they grow where they grow less in the winter and more in the summer, the bones of the fish had that as well. And so from that, she could tell what time of year the asteroid impact actually happened. Oh, hello. That's great. Springtime. Springtime for the apocalypse, apparently. So this seemed to have happened according to the bone structure of the fish. Um, They put on a lot of growth in the springtime. And uh, she kind of backed it up with evidence from kind of chemical signatures, um, carbon-13 in particular for those who know about it. But she she backed it up with chemical signatures and showed that, yeah, it seemed to be quite, you know, they, there was a thickening of the bones, particularly around springtime that seemed to happen. You know, the growth stopped in, in, uh, in the winter and in the summer it kind of slowed down significantly. So basically this study says that it looks like the fish all died when they were packing on that growth on their bones and therefore that asteroid impact happened in spring. But why does that matter? Well, it matters because we kind of, it might help us understand exactly why particular animals survived and others didn't. Because if the impact had have happened in winter or the end of winter and you've got a lot of animals, for example, coming out of hibernation, if hibernation was a thing, then maybe they would have been at a disadvantage because mm. they're all of a sudden had a hibernation period. They're looking for food. There is no food because, you know, the apocalypse has happened. And uh, so they all die out. Whereas if it happened kind of late summer, autumn, they might be at their kind of maximum weight if you're talking about the mammal-like creatures. Um, or, you know, maybe dinosaurs hibernated too. We don't know. Um, but uh, that would mean that they might be uh, in a better state to be able to survive that basically nuclear winter that happened after the asteroid hit. So, yeah, yeah springtime was when it happened. I thought that was a really cool Very story cool stuff. Now, week. you know I'm going to have to go and look up whether or not that impact actually affected the actual um, tilt of the Earth and whether the seasons yeah. changed as a result of that because that's freaking me out now because if that happened, then we you know, there's even more questions. It's, yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, which, you know, it's a, <laughs> yeah. it was a big, you know, to use a technical term, it was a big-ass hit. You know, yeah, it wasn't was. small. It was. So, yeah. yeah. Very good, uh, Ailey. I think that's amazing. These little critters tell so much um, yeah. cool stuff. Gracie, what do you got for us in news? Yes. So I will also be talking about dinosaurs. Um, So this actually happened back in 2017, but the paper just came out about it um, in current biology. Um, So the National Museum of Scotland is adding the world's largest Jurassic pterodactyl that's ever been found. Um, on, uh, it was originally found on the Isle of Skye, mm. specifically. Um, so the fossil is estimated to be about 170 million years old. Um, and they said the fossil of the, of the pterodactyl is the largest of its kind ever discovered from the Jurassic period, uh, which is really cool because it basically tells scientists that pterodactyls got larger much earlier than originally thought. Yeah, I mean, that's incredible, isn't it? And it's a full, like, it always amazes me when sometimes you hear about a find and it's a femur and that's it, you know, and like yes. there's that big extrapolation. But when you get the full the full thing, you know, and there's examples of that, but there's not a huge number of examples of full skeletons of some of the dinosaurs we know about. And when you find a full one, it's just extraordinary how much information it gives you. Yes, I think too, on a previous episode, we'd spoken about uh, there are only like seven to 11, I think, uh, full T-Rex skeletons mm. um which is a lot a lot fewer than most people think yeah yeah i just find the um when you look at some of the skeletons of these pteranodons 
in general, like these giant creatures that flew around. And you wonder, like, you know, they, they, they have such capacity for flight. And, I, you know, to me, I always wonder how far they could go. Um, you know, because, you know, birds seem to be able to travel a very, very long, long way. But these things obviously had a, had a fairly substantial diet. And I can't imagine them sort of, you know, flying around in a V-shape as a group um, from one country to another. But they, yeah. you know, they must, they must have been in vast numbers at one point um, for us to find any of them. Right. Yeah. And most of these actually are found in Brazil or China. So it was really rare that this one happened to be found in Scotland. Yeah, that's super cool stuff. On the line with us now is Alicia King, a doctoral candidate and research assistant in the Department of Occupational Therapy, Social Work and Social Policy at La Trobe University. Alicia, thanks for joining us. Good to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Now, you work at the moment. Well, you're doing your PhD, first of all. Let's talk about that. How far through are you? Um, in my final year now. Final year, so excellent. Getting real. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, Dr. Laura and I later are going to be talking about the value of PhDs, so you may want to tune out to that. I'm not sure what she's going to say. <laughs> it might be a problem. Um, but you're working on the idea of sort of sharing lived experiences of, um, ment- you know, with mental health professionals and, you know, within the profession, what they do. Talk us through what's what's happening there, because this is something we don't hear about a lot, the profession itself, what's going on within the profession, I guess, how they cope, especially over the last couple of years, you know, probably overloaded at the moment. I know, uh, you know, a lot, of, uh, a lot of people just aren't taking new patients. So what's happening there in terms of that sharing of lived experience between professionals? Yeah, I think uh, definitely in the last couple of years with COVID, um, it's sort of shone a light on the mental health of healthcare professionals in general, but certainly this is not a a new issue. So uh, unfortunately, uh, being trained in mental health uh, (laughs) doesn't prevent you from uh, experiencing, Mm. uh, you know, mental health challenges because uh, mental health professionals, of course, are human. (laughs) Um, But uh, it's... Been long, long, for a long time, it's been recognised uh, that professionals don't talk about their own experiences. Um, uh, but a couple changes that are sort of ha- have been happening over the last uh, sort of mm, twenty years in mental health practice is that we're starting to recognise the value of lived experience, so um, having past experience of mental health challenges, um, to improving mental health practice. Mm. Uh, improving service systems and uh, the Royal Commission in Victoria's Mental Health Services really uh, highlighted this as well. So um, we're starting to be aware that it's quite strange that professionals don't. uh, There's this sort of culture of non-disclosure in mental health services that's Mm. been uh, sort of discussed in the literature. Yeah. And why, why is that? Do we, I mean, I think, you know, as a as a male who grew up in the seventies, probably giving away too much information there, but people probably already know that. Um, you know, I know I know the upbringing I had. It was very uncommon for us to talk about this stuff. It took took a while for me to get to the point. You know, in my early twenties or whatever, where I, I felt more free. And even then, I knew there were consequences of talking about mental health. But you know, what's happening in the profession? Because you know, these people are learning about this stuff nonstop, learning the value of it. You know, hopefully. You know, I always have this line I use, which is one day mental health will be called health. And, you know, hopefully we're heading towards that. But, you know, still there's this, this issue. I mean, do, we, do we have a feeling for why it's still so entrenched? Mm. So I think 
um, up until now, a lot of the research in this area has focused on stigma mm. as a barrier to sharing. And of course, uh, mental health professionals are not immune to the effects of stigma either. Um, and there's a you know, there's some evidence to show that, um, you know, that that uh, mental health professionals hold stigma beliefs just like the rest of the population. Um, and that sometimes the nature of the um, people that they're seeing and that, that the uh, the the types of, uh, you know, they're seeing people at their worst. And so that mm. that sort of creates what's called a clinician's illusion. Um, that term was sort of uh, coined by Cohen and Cohen in the 80s, uh, whereby, you know, we professionals only see people at their worst. So they develop one view of people, uh, you know, you know, and, and their uh, you know, prognosis, uh, you know, what, uh, where they're headed. Um, but my research sort of uh, highlighted a couple other factors that really um, come into play. Uh, so, um, and that was really around ways of being in the workplace. So uh, whether professionals took on sort of more traditional notions of professionalism, so uh, being, um, you know, uh, which, you know, sort of have more rigid boundaries around sharing. Um, and those who were able to share or tended to share um, had had more new had a different view on on um, sh on sharing so they preferred to be more open in the workplace mm. and saw the value of that so it's kind of linked to those ideas of authenticity um that uh i think are you know weaving their way through society yeah interestingly enough here when i think about this i you know having been in a number of workplaces where you know i can be polite and say they didn't know anything about mental health. That might be one, one way to put it. Um, but, you know, how different is this scenario from more, you know, broader sort of issues around workplace acceptance of, of mental health? Because, you know, certainly I've worked in large universities and so forth. And, and really, it was not something you wanted to talk about in the workplace at all. And there were consequences for doing it. And they were subtle, but they were ongoing. And, you know, there was, there was definitely a stigma associated with anyone coming in and saying, I have this mental health condition? Yeah, so definitely stigma does play a part. And, uh, the, and it, it, there has been a large body of research done on uh, into other concealable stigmas in the workplace. So mental health challenges that might have been referred to as a concealable stigma and that people around you might not be aware uh, that, of what you're dealing with. Um, and that research really shows that... Um, you know, your perception of organisational and supervisor support uh, really determines whether you feel comfortable sharing. So whether your employer or your uh, manager has your back, um, you know, and uh, so that definitely played a part. Um, but I think also uh, notions of psychological safety have uh, a role to play in this, uh, in this conversation. So, um, and there's a big, another big body of literature there uh, that's um, supporting the value. So that's psychological safety is being able to speak up without fear of reprisal in the workplace. Mm. And I think that uh, from what my participants were saying in the, in the interviews, um, in, whether they shared privately or shared openly in the workplace was determined by that sense of psychological safety. Yeah. So whether where that was whether was that sense of interpersonal fear, they would restrict restrict their sharing to trusted confidants. 
or situations in which they had to share, maybe they had to ask for leave or that kind of thing. Um, whereas to share more openly in the workplace, uh, you know, they had to have that sense of uh, psychological safety. Yeah, interesting. And, and what about the, I assume, vast number of um, mental health professionals, you know, psychologists and, and the like, um, who work alone? <laughs> yeah, um, I think it's... Uh, that's a really interesting one. Um, I didn't interview uh, private um, mental health professionals. So the, the people that I spoke to were from two Victorian mental health services, mm. uh, one a, a state-funded um, specialist mental health service and one a, a non-government service, so funded through mainly through the NDIS. Yep. Um, so, yeah, I couldn't really speak to what's happening for those private uh, practitioners, but certainly we know that um, it's really important to connect with a peer group of people who are experiencing, uh, you know, similar things, and those discussions help people to... Uh, I guess, navigate their way through some of the unique challenges that that throws up. Mm. And Alicia, what would you like to see, you know, over the sort of next 10 years in terms of the way we transition these services? Because not every mental health professional is going to have lived experience. But that doesn't mean they can't offer, you know, vast, vast amounts of, of value to the community. So where, where do we sort of go from here? What do we need to have in place to make sure that, you know, a better understanding of what's going on is there? And, and, and to be frank, you know, our clinicians are taking care of themselves as, as much as they are taking care of others. So what do we need to do? One hundred percent. So um, I think the organisation um, in which uh, staff felt uh, more able to share and there were more examples of sharing openly, um, they had really clear messaging um, from senior leadership uh, and actions taken that really reflected the value of diversity and inclusion in the workplace. So things like um, training for people in uh, how to understand their lived experience um, and how to understand, you know, we don't all maybe have lived experience of mental health challenges, but we all have like an experience, a life experiences that we can draw upon in our work and use to empathise and understand uh, the people we work with. So uh, I think opening up that conversation is really important. Um, and yeah, uh, mm. and obviously supporting our lived experience workforce uh, in mental health is really important. So there is that those designated lived experience roles um, that we're going to see a lot more of, thanks to the Royal Commission. Um, and those people really have uh, expertise in, in how to do this well. Yeah, look, that sounds great. Alicia, thanks so much for chatting to us today. Good luck with the completion of the thesis. You'll be one of these people I, I think of as the, you know, the rare few that finished their PhD during the pandemic, which, you know, to be fair, you know, 20 years from now, we'll see this as like, uh, I don't know, it'll be uh, th these 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 sort of um, people who somehow managed it and and you'll be able, you'll have students and you say you think you've got it tough um, you know we I did mine during the pandemic and it will be seen very differently so look good luck with that and um, keep up the good work here I think this is something that obviously you know we've we've been put into a crucible with this over the last couple of years and there is a lot of stuff going on we're gonna have to pay a lot more attention to so happy to chat to you uh, as things evolve over the coming years and thanks for chatting today Thank you so much, Dr. Shane. That was Alicia King from La Trobe University in the School of Allied Health, Human Services and Sport. Triple R. Right, it's going to go time. We have got Gracie on the line all the way from Texas. You still there, Gracie? Yes, I'm still here. Excellent, excellent. 
like to check. You never know these days. <laughs> <laughs> Ailey's on the line as well, and Laura is in the studio. And Lib's doing our Twitter feed, which is, uh, you know, she's been doing it from home whilst, uh, you know, on her deathbed, more or less. But um, it's good to have her in the studio. Yeah, big giant piece of perspex between me and Liz. Liv, they protect me at all times. I love perspex. Actually, no, I don't. I think it's ridiculous, but it's, you know, hey, yeah, you can see through it, which is good. Gracie, you're going to tell us all about plants communicating. Go for it. Yes. So I've also seen on Twitter that you take care of plants in your backyard. Take care what kind of, of plants are those? Take care of is a very strong term for what I do. <laughs> uh, no, I'm a big fern uh, person. I love ferns. So I'm doing okay. everything in my power to keep some ferns from being roasted by the Australian sun. Yeah, ferns are difficult. Yeah. You've got to get the placement right. Yeah, yeah. i got a good spot. They seem to be going well. Yeah, I forget that the seasons are flipped because right here it's uh, it's like 30 degrees. I ran a 10K this morning and it was literally freezing. Are you talking um, Fahrenheit? So. Uh, yes, because it's, 30, it's, it's 30 degrees here I should too. clarify. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, was, it was freezing this morning. Yeah. So, um, But anyway, yes. Yeah, so, and I don't know if you think uh, this way too, but I kind of tend to think of plants as just kind of like sitting there. Um, and I don't really think that they're super complex. You know, maybe they're kind of reactionary in the sense that, uh, you know, they respond to some sort of stimulus like growing towards sunlight or something like that. Um, but plants actually have really complex communications. Um, and I'm probably going to do a lot of anthropomorphizing, uh, or in other words, kind of where I'm applying human-like qualities uh, to plants, like thinking and feeling. Uh, so I'll try not to do that too much okay. uh, during this story, but it's kind of hard. You know, all of my plants at home have names, and so it's hard <laughs> for me not to treat them like people. So um, I, I like to keep succulents. So I'm more of a succulent person because I can't kill them as easily. Yeah. Um, you don't have to do but, anything with those, do you? You just leave them. No, I just forget. Yeah, I just forget about them essentially. But they all they also have names. And I remember their names. So I just you know. Uh, but anyway, so plants do communicate with their environment and actually with each other in really interesting ways. Um, and this is basically either through chemical signals that they release into the air or chemical signals that they release through their roots. Um, so have you have you ever heard that that smell that a lot of people tend to like right after you mow your grass mm, um, yeah. is actually grass screaming? Have you heard that before? No. What? <laughs> yeah, so um, it's actually the smell that it's releasing into the air is actually alerting all of the other plants up your defenses because something is wrong here. Wow. Um, I've just been cut down. <laughs> <laughs> so it's actually a chemical signal that's being released, um, which is a lot of people's favorite smell, oddly. And so <laughs> I feel kind of conflicted about that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I reckon. <laughs> yeah, that is going to change the way I think about that smell. It's th- them screaming. Grass screaming. Aww. Yeah. Yeah, the the lawnmower was coming. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> well, the lawnmower was being at that point. But uh, they can also sense whenever they're being chewed on by an insect. And so they can actually also emit chemicals to kind of deter the insect from chewing on it, which is really interesting. Um, and so black walnut trees also emit kind of a toxic compound called juglone um, that can actually kill other plants. And this is a way of preventing other plants from crowding it, is it just emits a chemical signal to kill it. Uh, which is really interesting. Um, it's one of the only known plants that is actually known to actively kind of destroy other plants around it. Um, and actually, some plants respond to other plants' emissions. So, for instance, like sagebrush uh, will respond to like tobacco emissions. Um, and then chili peppers can also respond to like lima beans and cucumbers, oddly. 
Um, and also, did you know that Venus flytraps actually emit compounds specifically to attract prey? I, I have heard that, yeah. Venus flytraps are super complicated. Yeah, hmm. so they also have electrical signals, which that could be like a whole other episode, um, which is really rare in plants. Um, but they actually emit a compound that's really similar to the smell of a bouquet of flowers to actually attract insects that would normally come to those flowers. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and then, so plants also secrete chemicals in the soil uh, for communication. So, uh, for example, plants are also known to warn other nearby plants of aphids, uh, aphid attacks, which are like small little insects, um, using the fungi that connect their roots underground. So the chemical both repels the aphid, the insect, and it also attracts parasitic wasps to attack the aphids, which is really interesting. Yeah, I mean, that is real sort of full-on warfare, isn't it? Like, not only are you... Like repelling one insect is one thing, but actually drawing in predator bugs of some type that eat that particular insect, that is an incredible level of evolution. Yes, definitely. They also found, um, or sorry, researchers also found um, that if they had uh, single plants that were infested by aphids, they actually found um, that if that plant was connected to other plants through their root system, that the uh, uninfested plants would begin to kind of mount its chemical defense. Hmm. Um, so this was one of the first instances where it was documented that uh, these chemicals are also released in the soil, not just in the air. Um, because the plants that were not connected to any other plants by their roots showed no response. Yeah. Do we have any um, idea of how fast that happens, Gracie? Like if, um, you know, because often an aphid attack is relatively quick. Um, which mm -hmm. can depend on the weather, the wind, all sorts of things. Like how, how fast is that communication through the soil? That's a really good question. I actually don't know. Hmm. Um, would have to look that up. But yeah, yeah that's really interesting. Um, a lot of researchers were saying that that could actually be useful in crops that suffer a lot of damage from aphids. So they would basically get like a sacrificial plant to intentionally get attacked by aphids so that it can warn all the other plants ahead of time hmm. to help protect them. Um, yeah, and stop yeah. using chemicals. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Hmm. So they would kind of use the plant's own natural defenses um, yeah. in order to kind of bolster their crops, which is a really interesting idea, I thought. Um, so other scientists have also shown that when plant leaves are touched by other plant leaves, they change their growth strategy to kind of move away from the plant so they aren't crowded. Um, and that's kind of a well-documented, well-known thing already. But a 2018 study suggested that kind of this response of the plant moving away from its neighbor may also be due to chemicals in the soil as well. So researchers actually took a makeup brush and they kind of brushed plant leaves of corn seedlings for a minute each day. Um, and then they removed that plant and they put a new plant in its place. And that new plant also showed that it was diverting its resources, um, oh, wow. basically yeah. showing, suggesting, you know, that the this chemical reaction is occurring in the soil. Are they able to actually detect the chemicals in the soil that are happening? Is that something that they've picked up or are they just inferring that it's occurring, you know, as a result of these changes? Yes. Yeah, so they actually can test for these types of chemicals. So uh, two of the major kind of types are terpenes and benzodoids. Mm -hmm. um, and they're just kind of these chemicals that are typically found in plants. And so it's difficult sometimes to distinguish, um, you know, kind of baseline levels versus what's different. So from my understanding from reading the study, it was kind of a combination of both of those things. Interesting stuff. Mm. Yeah. 
Um, and also gardeners have known kind of for a long time that, you know, some species tend to get along better with some species than others. Um, and that plants are competitive whenever they have to share their pot with strangers of the same species, uh, but actually appear to be more accommodating with their sibling plants. Uh, and this was shown in a 2017 study. They actually uh, measured this by uh kind of measuring the root growth uh, to kind of claim their space. So whenever plants were planted with their siblings, uh, they actually were a lot more accommodating with, uh, like in terms of competition and their root growth. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I mean, one of the things I've always um, thought of is you, you, you hear about companion plants, you know, where you put one plant next to another and one plant will draw in certain bugs and it prevents the other plant from being eaten. You know, I've often done this with regards to growing vegetables and so forth and put other things. But I'm wondering now how much of that is just a misunderstanding of what's actually going on and whether or not that companion planting is actually where one plant is really informing the other one through the soil of what to do. Yes, that's super interesting. And that's mm. kind of a, a rising kind of field of research in the past like five or so years that's being looked into. Um there's another study uh, or kind of line of studies rather that uh, suggests that plants can actually feel whenever we touch them. Um, and so this was done by uh, researchers gently patted the plants is how it was <laughs> described in the research study. Just, I kind of pictured just somebody coming up and patting the plant on the head. Yep. Um, but uh, they actually um, identified two proteins in particular um, that could potentially switch off the plant's touch responses, which could be useful, again, for kind of raising plants and bolstering crops um, so that they don't respond to kind of false alarm stimuli in greenhouse environments where they're being touched by a lot of different plants. Yeah. I, I'm not sure. I, I didn't touch my plants that often. So they don't like to be touched? I, I, I need the takeaway here. Should I you, touch my plants or should I not touch you my You touch plants? your plants all the time, don't you, Laura? I do. Yeah. I do. Mine also have names. <laughs> Yours have names I have too? Yes. It's out of control. <laughs> <laughs> I clean their leaves individually. <laughs> They're my babies. Not creepy at all. Not creepy at all. Is that creepy, yeah. Gracie? Is that okay that she's doing that? Yeah, that's really impressive, actually. Um, the amount of time I would imagine that probably takes. Um, but yeah, so there's actually, I didn't see a study where, uh, like, suggesting whether or not touching the plant actually helped it grow or not. Mm. We're very close to the edge here for Laura talking to the plants, aren't we? You know, are we talking to the plants? Are they picking up the vibrations from our speech, Gracie? That's what Laura really wants to know. Yeah, so there was actually, there's actually been several studies done on that, um, but they've all been kind of contradictory, to be honest. And I think because a lot of them measured uh, plant growth completely differently, and they also measured vibrations completely differently. Some people did like, you know, one tone, one constant tone. Some people did different types of music. Um, some people did different types of frequencies for different periods of time. But kind of the major takeaway that I got from looking at that line of research was that plants tend to thrive uh, with music between 115 and 250 hertz, mm. since that frequency range tends to mimic nature. And then for reference, an average male voice is kind of at the lower end of that range. And then an average female voice is kind of at the higher end of that range. So talking to your plant may or may not be good for it. The jury's still out. Yeah, but. Laura's got a sort of yeah, slightly deepish voice. Probably. Well, yeah, so if you're in between, sort of, yeah, you know, if middle. you're of the deeper female, is that sort of like best case scenario <laughs> wavelength for your plants? <laughs> Am I hitting it right? Yeah, well, I'll have to do a controlled experiment. Yeah. I mean. is, uh, is, that, is it the term confirmation bias you, you're experiencing there, Laura? <laughs> you know, I think, yeah, I think you're looking. Gracie, it's super interesting stuff. Anything else before we go to a break? 
Yeah, so just kind of in summary, um, you know, in a sense, I thought it was interesting. Plants are kind of the most vulnerable creatures, in a sense, if you think about it, because they're usually really delicate um, and they just kind of have to survive in whatever environment they're in. They don't really have the option to run away, obviously. Um, so since plants can't really run away or get away from their harmful conditions, these kind of evolutionary characteristics that they've developed are really interesting um, to kind of respond to their environment and respond to escape danger without moving. Yeah. Oh, look, I, I find it absolutely fascinating. This the the chemical warfare that plants can, you know, unleash on their environment and and all, all manner. You know, we, we've we've spent thousands of years getting some plants to the point where we can eat them. You know, they were pretty good at getting rid of us for a while, but we've slowly but surely gotten to the point where we can eat certain things. But um, but insects are a different game. You know, they really struggle with some of these things, and the fact that these plants are communicating through the soil um, chemically is just yeah, it's phenomenal stuff. And I think it opens up a whole new world of how we how we might grow crops and so forth in the future, as you said, with the the possibility of actually utilizing some of those features to make our crops smarter as opposed to, you know, pumping them filled with chemicals and all sorts of other stuff. So, Gracie, thanks so much for that. Super interesting stuff. Triple. Ah. Laura is going to talk all about uh, PhD theses, that big chunky book. You know, I've got one b- beside my fridge. Yeah, so yeah, it stops my cats getting behind the fridge. Yes, you see, this is what a PhD is often used for: a doorstop, a computer stand. It's a book that you give to your parents, and it looks pretty but they never open it. And this is what I want to question, okay? So, you just broke a lot of hearts, you well, know. Look, you broke a lot of hearts. People, like, so, you know, you interview so many PhD students on the show, yeah. and, and PhD, breaking it down, original contribution to research, takes three to four years, often longer, mm-hmm. high dropout rate, and the end of it, if you know someone that's either done a PhD or doing a PhD thesis, they... Um, they might sort of have this in dread, it ends up in that book, the big yep. book that we have. Now, that book is examined by two people. And so with your thesis or with my thesis, how many people actually ever read it? Well, my supervisor read it. Yeah. He loved it. Yeah, so that's oh, he one. Loved it, yeah. And then the two examiners. Yeah, and I read it a few times. But you wrote it, right? So would you say three people Read yeah. your thesis? Because I think three people read mine. Yeah, I think I had two supervisors, so I think both of them okay, read so it. So four, four people. Yeah, okay. four. And your supervisors already knew the <coughs> content, so it's not really adding so much. Yeah. My point is, people spend six months of their life writing a book that only three to four people read. Yeah, speak for yourself and knock mine out in three. <laughs> but, okay, so this is, this, this, is, this is a conversation topic which came up um, in staff meeting recently where I work, um, which is the Doherty Institute... Um, at Melbourne University, and we crank through a lot of PhD students. Yep. Melbourne University puts through about just shy of a thousand a year. And um, the amount of time that it takes to write your thesis, in contrast to how, um, you know, how long you're doing, how long you're sort of producing the research, is that worthwhile? What's the, you know, nothing seems to have changed in many, many years since my day, which was pushing like almost 20 years ago. From your day to the 60s, people produce this book, which is 80 to 100,000 words. Yeah. And a lot of it is repetitive. And of course, we know that a PhD needs to culminate in something. There needs to be, something needs to be examinable. But um, it's not something that really a lot of PhD students see it as a rite of passage. A lot of them have a sense of dread about writing this thesis. And what does it benefit 
the research are moving forward in life. Say a lot of it, a lot of students leave academia, a lot of the skills that they need of, you know, succinct science communication, it's, that's the opposite of the sort of the monologic mm. thesis. Mm. And when you go into the job market, whether it's a good thesis or whether it's an empty book, doesn't help you moving forward. Yeah. Because your potential employer is never, ever going to open that book, even the examiner. Yeah. It's, it's fears really, it's, the, the size of that book. Yeah, it's really interesting actually when you say that because when, like, I teach a lot of um, communication workshops both in and out of science and often one of the examples I give of things that make you bad communicators is the thesis writing. Right, because it's so verbose. But, well, and it's, and it's also not a good version of, yeah, well, it's not a good version of communication. I mean, you know, Liv, you're, you're an author. You know, you must see this stuff and kind of laugh because you've spent years becoming an author. Yeah, I spent about, yes... Yeah, seven years studying writing and then i did do a thesis in my master's which was yep. a very interesting i guess uh yeah, yeah achievement <laughs> well, well sometimes scientists will spend a, a day at the workshop learning how to write does that how's that compare to you <laughs> to your seven years i hope they have a good editor yeah. <laughs> uh rarely but even if you stay in academia, generally one of the skills that you want is to be able to, you know, disseminate what you've learned to a broader audience, you know, multidisciplinary, what's, you know, streamlining it to, you know, really convey the major messages of what you've found. I mean, I don't want to completely diss the thesis because, you, uh, you know, uh, I'm only speaking for my own discipline, immunology, but um, of course, you, you know, a laboratory needs a way to store the methodology and all the data, but that thesis at the end, which is often regurgitation of a lot of what may have been published or will be published in the future is not exactly the best time spent for a researcher mm. um i know that you know internationally you know the integrated model of phd by publication is becoming very very common and this is where you know those research articles that you publish are stapled together and that's your thesis together with the lit review fantastic idea i'm totally behind it it's a, it's exactly what we're talking about a leaner more succinct phd if you like but for many students, at least in Australia, that's not an option, even if it is an option, if you know what I mean. So Melbourne University say you can publish by, um, you can do your PhD by publication, but the majority of people will not be able to because it's entirely in the hands of their supervisor. Mm. What's their mm. discipline? You know, and also if you're not, um, if it's a co-lead author publication, which is becoming more and more common in very complex studies, you can't submit that within your thesis. So, you know, so there's lots of doors that close in that option to do it by publication. So, um, yeah. It, it's, it's an interesting question because, you know, when I had students and, and I, when I was a student, there's a point in your career as a scientist, and this is true for other, some other fields as well, where I think your peers start to recognize, you know, we could actually employ this person as a professional. You know, you've crossed that sort of boundary. And the thesis and, the, you know, they, they're kind of part of that transition, but often you've made that determination about an individual before the, the thesis is written yeah. because they've done X number of papers, they've given X number of amazing talks at conferences, people are starting to refer to their work, they're contributing to university society in, in, or institute society in other ways. They may be teaching. They may be doing outreach, all sorts of things. And you say, okay, Laura is now at the point. I don't care about this thesis, but she is actually a professional scientist now. She can call herself a scientist, and that's something we all need to accept. And it, it seems as though, you know, just in the same way that you would have other forms of, you know, promotion – in science, you know, when you go from being a, a junior academic to a more senior academic and you have to weigh the person up, you could extend that further down 
into into the the PhD realm and start removing the idea of you know just this ridiculous writer. Well, yeah, I mean nobody um, say people that sort of you know I've employed or I've seen employed as postdoctoral fellows. I don't know any employer who's read their thesis or looked at their thesis, mm. but if they would have had a video on YouTube, dance your PhD, it's a real thing, or three-minute <laughs> yeah. thesis competition, or, you know, say, Shane, you do 20, you know, 20 PhDs mm. in 20 minutes, sum it up in a minute. That's something that's very tangible, which people would, of course, like look up and listen to. But the book in its current form, in its current length... I see as becoming a bit obsolete, and I don't think that's changed from the 60s to now. And, um, you know, I was definitely inspired by this, uh, to talk about this, both from, you know, conversations within my own department, but also there was um, a Times Higher Educational article that came out in 2015, which posed the question, a PhD thesis obsolete? And this came from um, the director of the Wellcome Trust, who was just questioning the value to science of the amount of time writing this writing mm. this book that people don't read. Yeah. I think it'd be interesting too, you know, with okay, this was all established at the time when the real really only form of media was the written word. Yeah. And so we've moved into a space I, I know there was a journal I used to publish in called Optics Express, I think it was called. It was one of the first online only journals very early on. And a few of us we decided to publish in this journal because you could submit video. And so if you were doing modeling and you, you know, had these models of video and we were in optics, so everything looked cool. We just wanted to show videos of That's some of the ahead stuff. of its time. Um, you could, and this was, you know, maybe 15 years Well, yeah, because I was thinking was of back. when this would have been. That's yeah, why so I like, said yeah, it, Yeah, 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 very long time ago. <laughs> um, but, you know, you could, you could submit short pieces of video. And, that, and so because the journal was only available online, there was no print version, you know, you, you would be able to view that. And it was, it was amazing because there was so much more that you could show. And the traditional thesis, of course, doesn't do that. I mean, I would love a, you know, this this will show my age straight away, but, you know, like when you open up your the thesis book as the examiner and there's like a cutout with a videotape in it, you know. I would be so excited by that. I can't even tell but it you. It might be an hour long. You have to watch an hour of this person talking about their work and, and going through it all. But it would be so much more engaging and effective. It would. It and would. I think it, it also would teach, it would, you know, if you had better forms of communication around the thesis, it would teach you know, researchers, those communication skills, they would have to learn those skills that they will need the second they get out either into industry or the university or anywhere else. And we start valuing the way in which science is communicated as much as we value, you know, frankly, a 250-page document, as you say, that no one's going to read. Yeah. Even if they say in academia, like... Mm. communicating your research is absolutely key both you know to to publish and sell the importance of what you're doing but also through to just the necessary fact that you're a scientist and you should be disseminating your findings broadly yeah um, and i just don't think those skills are sort of um i i like i know that you're involved with three minute thesis as well i love that idea yeah you know, convey it in three minutes yeah it's it seems so 3mt for me is an interesting one because what, what I like in terms of communication challenges that, that are out there are ones that we replicated later in people's lives. So you will never do the three-minute thesis again. It's a, it's a little skill set that you'll do just for that competition. So what I like is scenarios where you will, you know, you'll replicate real conditions that you'll get later. So, you know, when we do the 20 PhDs in 20 minutes here, they don't know what they're going to be asked. Yeah. You know, it's a response thing. It's live. They have to, they have to react. They don't get to – don't like 3MT is interesting because it relies on you memorizing a script and regurgitating that in three minutes. And that is a skill in itself. And there may be jobs, you know, there are jobs out there for which that would be valuable. 
Um, but, you know, it's, it's one very narrow skill. And I think what we need to do is be really careful that we're skilling up our scientists with a range of these skills, a range of different things. And, you know, the thesis, you know, in the end should, or whatever that looks like, should be part of that process of actually skilling people up so that if they have to go and talk to a group of kids at the school or a, a granting body or a donor or, or some people they're trying to recruit into a trial or whatever it happens to be, they've got some skills that are useful. So, uh, Gracie, you, uh, you, you're, you're going to be submitting your thesis soon. Do you have to just compile some big giant document no one's going to read or are you stapling all your publications together? Yes. Yeah, so my university's policy is you need to have one first author accepted and published and then the next one just needs to be submitted, which is pretty lenient. Other universities require at least three publications. Mm. Um, so, but yeah, that is what I'm planning on doing is just the alternative version of just kind of stringing a bunch of published things together. Yeah. Will it be bound? Will it be nicely, you know, we like to emboss ours in gold. No, I definitely don't want a paper copy of mine. I don't need a reminder of it physically. <laughs> um, <laughs> maybe as a doorstop. Yeah, I remember back in the day when I did mine, that the university would give you a, a small amount of money to go and um, and and get them done, and 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 very wrongfully at the time, I remember going to this place it was out in Caulfield somewhere here in Melbourne, and they they offered up this leather bound version, which you know you could just smell all the way home. It was Ooh. just and nothing thought, says academic than like, leather, leather bound. <laughs> and, and now that I think about it, I think that was a terrible thing to do. Like environmentally, that was a terrible thing to do. Totally. But um, but you know my my. At the time, my supervisor said, you know, that was one for me to keep. And, you know, then he said, you'll want to get some of the other ones for your parents and you'll, you know, a couple for the examiners and he'll want one. And then one goes to the library and all of a sudden you've printed eight copies of these things. And there's actually more copies than people who are actually uh, reading it. Yes, yeah, crazy. Oh, we have to pay for ours. Oh, you have to pay. Well, that might be true yeah. here now too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have to pay for ours. Yeah, back oh, okay. in the good old okay. days. When there was a big bucket of cash just floating around, um, you know, I'm not sure if that was ever true, but it was certainly better than it is now. They'd give you a small amount, a small stipend to to get as many as you wanted. So I have a couple on my shelf at home, and one stuck beside the fridge, as I said, to keep the cats out. Yeah, mine's burgundy and gold, and it looks beautiful, but yeah. I never open it. Yeah, I'm going to open mine when I go home. Just have a look now, see what's in there. The only thing anyone reads is the acknowledgements page, yeah. just to check that they have been dutifully acknowledged <laughs> with some sort of jokey pun. But um, yeah, like like Gracie said, the publication model, that's like absolutely fantastic, but it's so field dependent yeah. that what can the students do when they're at the mercy of their supervisor and their discipline yep. when they and, can't publish. And I think, that, again, that's where universities have to be flexible about yep. what they accept. I mean, if you're in, if you're in history, you're in various other parts of the social sciences, various, you, know, you know, sometimes a book is worth... 100 papers you know like it yeah. can be a really valuable piece of uh, contribution and you know we have to be careful that we acknowledge all those appropriately and it's not just the bioscience yes, version I'm of the world very much talking follow. about yeah. bioscience i want to be very clear about that so yeah well look, we're gonna have to hand over to the team from eat it in just a moment gracie thanks so much for joining us all the way in your saturday night there in texas great to chat to you thanks for having me good to see you too ailey hopefully we'll get you in the studio soon Hopefully, Dr. Shane. See you soon. Sounds great. Laura, great to have you in the studio. Pleasure to be here. This is your like a third time this year. It's yeah, no. non-stop. <laughs> you know, that's what happens. And Liv, good to have you yes, back. Yes, it's very after, nice to be back. God, I haven't seen you in like two and a half <laughs> years. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. It's, it's, 
crazy. <laughs> yeah, that, but Liv's been doing our Twitter feed even though she has been home, um, you know, fading away. But she's back. She's strong. She's looking good. Yep. Um, so we're happy to have her here. Folks, I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. Hope that um, all of our good friends in Ukraine are doing okay and that that ends quickly. A big shout out from us here at Triple R. You're listening to Einstein the Go-Go. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein the Go-Go a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.